3: Yes, Chef listeners, welcome to another episode. We've got a corker lined up for you today. We're sat in Marleybourne outside of one of Jordan's favourite coffee shops.
0: Jordan, tell us the story behind this. So when I worked in Wagamama, nice used to thing. it's horrendous. If you've never done a 12-hour shift, they give you a three-hour break in the middle. I used to sit here on my own with all the taxi drivers, and we used to just talk about, you know, old times.
3: Well, on that note, we're going to go and chat to Ravinda Bogo, who's got a jacconi. We're going to get her in there. And find out what makes it tick.
0: Bon app. Are we all good? Yeah, yeah, I'm good.
3: Can you hear everything?
1: Yes, I can hear you perfectly.
0: There we go. Two loud Northerners in a corner.
1: I love your accents, by the way. I Thank you very
0: much. Northern accents. People are kind of go. <laughs> I think it's a bit weird when we go into to interview chefs and it's, it's these two Northern blokes just sat there like, we're going to see our good looks. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Good job. That's why we're doing an audio show, mate. We're not, we're not doing TV. Hey, it's always next year. Oh, it's always. Let's see. Right. Um, we're in um, we're in, Marlebone in um, a very cozy, cute place. In the grandma's corner. In the grandma's corner. We've got cushions surrounding us. Very nice. With Ravinda. How are you?
1: I'm very well. Thank you.
0: Um, you've just told us off mic that you um, have just been away for the first time in a long time for two weeks. Yes. How are I have. you feeling?
1: I'm feeling very, very relaxed. Um, I haven't felt this relaxed in a very long time. And to actually be able to leave the baby at home and go away for two weeks and come back and find it still alive is is a really lovely, lovely thing.
0: I bet it is. So where were you?
1: I was in Indonesia. Uh, and then I went on to Ubud in Bali, which is like hippie town. Oh, Incredible. very nice. Yeah. But the produce, I mean really inspiring, inspiring food. But there's a huge movement that I didn't know about in, in Bali. Um, firstly, a lot of vegetarian and vegan food, which surprised me. Um, but also this real movement to farm to table. Um, so most, a lot of restaurants just have farms or they're growing things and whatever they're growing, they're they're cooking. It's it's really incredible.
0: So the food just blew you away then, eh?
1: Things like, you know, the turmeric, the freshness of the turmeric, the lemongrass, and you rip it off and smell it. It's like there's nothing else like it. It's incredible. I just wanted to cook it.
3: Was it a a foodie trip or was it just food's part of your holidays?
1: Um, I think all trips I go on end up being foodie just because that's my interest and, and food kind of takes me to places. So I... I deliberately choose places where I know I'm really going to enjoy the food. And I knew Bali would be one of those places. Well,
3: speaking of food taking you places, why don't we get into what your first food memory is?
1: Wow. My first food memory. I have a few. I have very vivid memories of my childhood My husband often says to me, how the hell do you remember that? You were like three, four years old. But I grew up in Kenya in this kind of really wild terrain, uh, red, volcanic, alluvial soil, um, very open spaces, chickens in the backyard, a completely chaotic, mad family. Um, You know, there was an extended family. That's just how people lived back then. And, you know, it was a very social society and... My grandmother was always having some religious function, but it was just an excuse really to have people over and have a bit of a party. Um, And my mother, who was this tiny, um, you know, she was like like the sergeant major of the kitchen. She just ran it all. And people turned up with no warning, no invitation, all hours of the day. The doors always open. You know, you always had to be ready to feed people. And so I remember lunches, for example, they were never less than 15 people to eat. Um, so you just had to get involved. And I remember sort of being on a tricycle and being pulled off and my mother taking me into the kitchen and saying you just have to learn to cook otherwise you'll never get married and she you know I grew up in <laughs> that's this that's why very, I'm not married that's that's why <laughs> um but you know I grew up in this very kind of Austenesque household with four sisters and my mother's main concern was how will my daughters ever get married? <laughs> and she really thought in that Victorian sense that if you sewed well and you, you know, you cooked well, then you would snare a very good pr- prospective husband. Um, so really old fashioned. But I remember things like, um, you know, just re- my mother used to make these, um, they call called and they're like a, a kind of North Indian snack made with um, flour and lots of butter um cumin ajven this uh, caram seeds, and she'd roll them out and you, deep fry them, and you'd have to fork them to stop them puffing up, so my job was just forking rounds and rounds, endless rounds, hundreds of these oh, things nice. um and that's make, just
3: to to feed the family that's just family to, to, snacks yeah and
1: snacks yeah. you know for people who come round and then. Um, And then I remember particularly, I have a very visual memory because it was, everything was so alive, you know, so everything was electric. Um, I remember a red plastic bucket and a sack, I mean, I'm talking a 10 kilogram sack of fresh green peas and I'd I'd sit on this stool with this red bucket next to me and I'd just pop have to in. pop
0: all the peas. This is like this is this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't give you any good jobs, did it? popping so peas in, pop in a <laughs> bucket. You're getting <laughs> dragged
3: off your tricycle. Exactly. I mean, this is harsh,
0: man. I'm not like this.
1: And uh, and you know, I remember these caterpillars every now and then making me like scream. And um and then I remember mostly I remember Dal. You know, this was like the thing, the staple, whether you're a prince or a pauper in in India, you eat dal. And I remember this sort of um, very precariously balanced pressure cooker that everyone was just scared of, um, kind of um, puffing out hot steams of like, you know, steamy dal smells around the kitchen. And then every now and then it would just go off. And my mother always explaining to me, you have to listen. It'll be ready in three whistles. But for me, it sounded like it was just whistling constantly. <laughs> so I, how do you know? And, uh, and then, you know, kind of the nervous, you know, tottering over to <laughs> lift it off the cooker, yeah, hoping it didn't yourself, explode. Free. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I remember. And I remember, and even now I kind of wonder at my, my mother's doll. Because I've never, and I actually just only recently figured out why my dal was never as good as my mother's.
3: You cracked and the secret.
1: I've cracked the secret. and it, Four you know, whistles. <laughs> four, four whistles. It was the four whistles and the kind of shameless amount of butter that she churned in at the end. So and that's that's
3: why you had the red bucket. Yeah. Load it full of buckets.
1: So they used to have this thing called a madani. And it's like a rod, a, a, similar to a masher. I guess you could get the same ef- effect with a masher. But the idea was that you'd cook the dal to a, a point where it was kind of falling apart. And then you just get a packet of butter and throw it in and then go in with this like madani and just kind of really, really go at it until it's kind of oh, amazing. I
0: think every culture is just. Chuck some butter in it. I mean, like, it's yeah. it just makes it better, doesn't it? It's like...
1: Everything. Mashed potato should be 70% butter. So that's the
0: thing. My first job in the kitchen, someone said to me, a chef said to me, he goes, I've made mash. And he was like, you know why your mash is not good? How much butter have you put in there? Well, I've put, like, what you do at home, you know. He said, no, this is how much butter. And I, I was shocked. I was yeah. shocked because I was like, it is more butter than potato. Yeah. And I was like... <laughs> This is this is mashed butter, man. You really can't doing this. So you're talking. It's obviously your mother and your grandma were the cooks in your house, obviously. Yeah. I mean, in that, it, just the women cook in the house, or no? Never the blokes were allowed in the house. It
1: was never the men actually who cooked in our kitchen. My father attempted to a few times. He did a bit of things like barbecuing, but it was the love of food, and actually, although it was my mother who very much inspired my, you know, my sort of culinary wisdom and gave me my culinary education, it was my grandfather who inspired it, really, because, in fact, there's a photo of him um, on our entrance, because he really is the spirit of this place. So he was a man who had a very interesting story. Um, He was a bit of a rebel, lived in Punjab, was bored out of his brains, didn't like provincial Punjab, wanted adventure, plotted with his brother to run away, um, ran away to Bombay. He was already married by this point, you know, leaves his pregnant wife. I mean, he told her what he was, his plan was, uh, gets to Bombay, sees posters for ships sailing to Kenya and decides, this is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to make my money. And him and his brother get on a sail, which appara- a, a, a sailboat, which apparently sails for 26 days. And ends up back in Bombay, and something had gone wrong with it, and they couldn 't sail all the way to oh, Kenya, no. so he lost all his money and his brother and you know I can imagine the conditions must have been pretty horrific um, and his brother is like i 'm never doing that again, whereas my grandfather just went at it again and a month later set sail again by himself, not knowing anyone there and turned up to this wilderness in Kenya. And it was wilderness then, like in the 1940s, the wildlife, you know, it was... And he fell just completely and utterly in love with it. And just, it was that earth, that red volcanic soil that stains your shoes and just makes everything taste so good that he fell completely in love with. And apparently... He was sold a piece of land which uh, was barren, so he was tricked. But just this kind of passion for the land and the love for it just made it blossom. And he managed to turn this barren patch into this blossoming, um, you know, allotment. And, um apparently, the people who'd sold it to him were furious and very jealous, and they poisoned him, so he actually ended up in an asylum i mean it's like a land it's loves. like a film you you know was say, it
3: sounds like, <laughs> it's like a Netflix special this, isn't
1: it <laughs> no, it really is and you know he ended up in an asylum, and the the poison poisoned his brain, and he'd forgotten everything i mean it was like uh you know. And he went through all of that. And then seven years later, my grandmother set sail to go and join him in Kenya. And, you know, by this point, he'd set up and, you know, she never left her village. I think she married him at like 13, 14, the way things used to be. Never left her village. She didn't have a father, so wasn't from a wealthy background. There were four sisters in her house. So, you know, her mother had brought her up. Single handedly. She yeah, just never seen anything other than her village. And then suddenly, and you know, they were real pioneers and they learned the language, they learned to speak fluent Swahili, they integrated, they set up home, they I mean they were just quite incredible people.
0: Inspiring though, isn't it? Very Taking inspiring.
1: risks. Yeah, risk takers, which <laughs> I think maybe I have that in my blood, which is why I opened a Bloody Restaurant. <laughs> but um you know, my grandfather just loved to eat. And in that kind of belt loosening, you know, belching kind of way, he had to be completely full by the end of the meal. And he really, he was a Sikh. Um, I was brought up with Sikhism. And one of the tenets is uh, the idea of seva, which is um, community service, service to your neighbor, service to your community. And he said to me very early on, you know, the best way you can do seva, and everyone has to do seva in their life, whether you like it or not, you will find yourself having to do it. And the best way to do it and the easiest way to do it is just simply to feed people. And there's something about that that stuck. And he, the doors were always open for that reason. And he would just pull off people who he barely knew and invite them in for meals. And part of it was because he was very proud of my grandmother and my mother's cooking, and he liked to, you know, entertain. And he he used to say, you know, on every grain of food there is someone's name written on it. It's like the destiny to have this food, and that destiny is like a pull. It pulls people towards you, um, and and there's just something so beautiful and philosophic, uh, uh, you know, philosophical about that that really spoke to me. And I realized very early on, um, in the way you know you do, that actually when you cook for someone it's like currency you know people fall in love with you You cook for them you cook you make them happy in some way and you have them that's it you've captured them in that moment and it was just you know it was so gratifying for me um and that's what made me fall in love with cookery
3: yeah what a what a fascinating story
0: I love That's that. That's the best answer. they just done it's really well. It's very long. I love <laughs> no, it. Mean, no, I love it. I, I love it. Like, it. You visualise it. You just shut me and Ben up for five minutes, <laughs> which is literally like, had not happened. So that was nice. I think Kieran's probably shocked. The producer's probably going to, he's making a note. Jordan, <laughs> ben and Jordan didn't speak. That's going to put. Um, that was fantastic. And so basically, you've, so you've been in Kenya and then you, did you move over here? When, I mean, what happened with your relationship going up with food, obviously. Yeah. Going into education oh. and stuff.
1: So I moved here. It was a, a, a dark November. I was seven years old, and my parents hadn't told me. So we'd visited London lots of times because my father had a dual citizenship, and he he'd been an aeronautical engineer, and he'd travelled quite a lot. And he never they never sat me down and had that conversation like we're actually moving country. So you've they just. I thought we were going to, you know, Fortnum and Mason well, you and, you know, families and, yeah. Get some ties and, and that, you anyway. know, <laughs> and I thought that, you know, that's what London used to be to me. It used to be this kind of carousel of like lovely things and like foreign cousins and roast potatoes and Yorkshire puddings. And then suddenly <laughs> we were in this flat above a shop. Um, you know, going through a very difficult time financially as well. And, you know, coming from this beautiful tropical climb, this like kind of maddening, you know, sight, smell, sounds, something that was so stimulating for all those senses to just coming to this grey landscape.
0: In in November. In (laughs)
1: November, the darkest November. It was quite a shock to my system. Yeah, it was really, really, really terrifying actually, very alienating. My mother wasn't quite happy about being here so she was quite depressed and it was really difficult. It was really difficult times and kind of the thing I think that actually got me through it was actually the kind of the the regularity of meal times. <laughs> and actually there is nothing like food to um, help a family who uh, get you know settle in uh, to a country than then that kind of regularity of of meals and eating and you know the normalcy of is meals. that the, the sort
3: of familiarity of of the food you'd have back home into
1: well I think I think this is what happened I think you suddenly come to a country where you're everything seems so grey and barren and hopeless and everything seems so sad and grey and you know you're missing home bitterly and you're homesick and and then over time you start getting used to things and you start uh, getting you know you start settling in and I think the settling in comes from sort of being very proud of your roots and wanting to preserve your culinary heritage through food. But then also suddenly this barrenness opening up and you start seeing the beauty and the wonder of your new landscape and the things it has to offer. And you end up combining your old culinary heritage or, you know, um, tricks with, uh, with your new landscape. And actually you create an entirely new cuisine. It's a completely new cuisine. And I think actually that's what immigrant food is. It's that kind of, um, you know, uh, how do you put it? It's the kind of uh, resolving your your old and your new. Mm. And it's what comes out of that. And I think that is just so beautiful. And I think that is what I'm most proud of, that I am a creature of so many cultures and I have created something at Jaconi. Like people come here and sometimes they think, oh, brown girl, Indian food. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's not Indian food because I'm Indian, East African, I have Persian ancestry, I have uh, British roots, I'm, I consider myself British, and it's all those traditions, it's my travel, it's the immigrant culture I grew up living in, because I think immigrants also, when you're growing up and you're an immigrant, you, you stick to other immigrants somehow, whether it's the area that you're living in economically or whatever it is and those kind of immigrant economies support each other. So you will go to a Chinese supermarket even if you're Indian to to, to get your vegetables or whatever it is and then with that you get you're exposed to these new flavours and you pick up some of those and you just end up creating something completely new. Yeah. So
3: now when you're seven years old you go into a brand new school in a totally new country. Yeah. What was that like?
1: really alienating, actually, um, not knowing um, things, you know, I could obviously grew up speaking English, but you have a different accent, you, you're carrying the burden of still trying to fit in and your family's burden, of course, because children are, you know, they can see their parents sort of suffering or, you know, trying to settle and, you um, it was, it was really difficult for a long time, actually. I, it took, took me a long time to come to terms with, uh, leaving Kenya, just because Kenya was just this magical, magical place to grow up in. space, um, the space, From space to have no space
0: must be like, especially at that age when you need to be running around, <laughs> you need I, to be outside.
1: I remember my mother tells me this story about when I was about seven, um, And I got really sick, and I didn't, you know, for two weeks I had fever, and no one quite knew what was wrong with me, and the doctor didn't couldn't quite figure out it wasn't a virus or anything. And then apparently one day I woke up, woke up my mother, and I was like screaming in my sleep, and um, and when she came to the bedroom, I asked her for, I said, "I, I I want to eat a guava, and she just looked at me and she's like, there are no guavas, this is England. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) but I can smell them. They're here. I can smell them.
0: Tripping about guavas. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And, you know, I grew up with them growing in our garden. The smell in the morning from being warmed, are they're just incredible. And I really, really desired (laughs) these guavas. And, you know... she she just anyway it went on and I kept asking banging on about these bloody guavas and then eventually um she presented me with this box one day and it was like kind of six guavas really out of season really unripe in sawdust (laughs) and um She'd (laughs) she'd sourced the guavas and she's like okay you have to put them out on the windowsill to ripen and, you know, I kind of watch them every day, try, you know, ripening. And they were different because the ones we used to get in Kenya were like really thin pistachio green skin. And they were fuchsia inside. And have never almost, had
0: one. i on one now. I think the first <sighs> I've got is a Boost Guava. <laughs>
1: oh, my God. It's, they're amazing. And you could almost see that pink light from this kind of almost translucent pistachio green skin. And... You can you can tell I spent a lot of time obsessing about guavas. <laughs> this is brilliant. <laughs> and and you know I just re- really and I remember eating that first ripened guava, and even though it wasn't the same,
0: special day.
1: I got well, you know, oh, wow. and and that was what I was suffering from was homesickness, really, and um, and and the cure was guavas. <laughs> did you take them to school? Take what the guavas? No, no, no. Too what, what did you take to school? Oh my God, all the stuff that made me cringe back then. So my mother, you know, I, I was the child that was praying that I'd open my lunchbox for one time and find a ham sandwich and some hula hoops no, this in is it. Is so Look, interesting. Uh,
0: nearly every chef has said that to us. My mum was waiting. It's like, a case of just wanting to fit in though, isn't it? Yeah. That's what it is. It's like, I want to have the plainest, beigeest thing and a yoghurt. Yeah. You know I mean? That's it. Because then you'd be normal man. You
1: know, and my lunchbox would be like kima chapatis and like, you know, singing with like garlic and asafoetida and all the things that like make you cringe as a child. And, um, and you know, just... Yeah, just wanting a jam sandwich for a change. <laughs> it's like Opening the box
0: in Pulp Fiction, the gold, <laughs> yeah.
1: and um, and you know, just uh, that that was that. But it, it's incredible that what you know was so alien, just you know, in the eighties when I was growing up, now is just like normal. Mm. And I think that is the great thing about Great Britain is that adaptation adopting things you know making things your own and that's i think you know i know people go on and on about supermarkets and slag them off but actually i commend supermarkets because they have made things that were so alien (laughs) you know the smells the the sights of things just very very commonplace
3: yeah everything's accessible then isn't it so you're growing up and you've obviously got um, a strong interest in food from back home but how does that make its way into you becoming a cook?
1: Uh, It was just a, a really unorthodox story because I never was told. I mean, my family told me that I had to learn to cook so I could feed my husband and my children. And that's what I thought you learn to cook for I'd never considered it as a career path or thought this is I I'm talented at this I could do this for a living um and I came from a very typical Indian orthodox but ba- you know background and where my parents were like okay you know Actually, my dad wasn't even super into education for girls, if I'm honest. You know, he just thought I should get married and that would be my lot in life. And I, in fact, that's what my three sisters ahead of me had done. They'd sort of skipped their educations, just got married and, you know, settled down. And then I was number four, (laughs) the rebellious one. Okay, so that that was in
3: your mind. You'd seen it.
1: I'd seen it. And I just thought, yeah, I don't even think I consciously thought I don't want that it's just something inside me wanted something else. And I I couldn't put it into words. It's just something yeah. I just moved. I was like my grandfather in a way. That spirit. That rebel spirit want you know, wandering away and growing up in a very different environment. I was in England. I wasn't in Kenya anymore. Um, and I got to eighteen and said I want to go to university, and they were quite shocked because I, you know, nobody else had. And I just put my foot down and said, "No, I want to study," and uh, ended up doing. So my father said, "Well, fine, if you're going to study, you're either doing accounts, (laughs) pharmacy, or law." And I thought, "God, I haven't got any interest in science, so that's the pharmacy out. Numbers drive me absolutely bonkers, so that just left law." And so I. Got onto a law degree and just hated it. It was not it's the longest my thing. degree
0: as well, isn't it? It's the seven-year one. It's like yeah, you have to do it so many years.
1: Anyway, so I just thought, no, this isn't for me. So I secretly, <laughs> English was the thing. Language was the thing that I loved. You know, I loved reading and I loved writing. Um, and I secretly changed my course to an English degree. Didn't tell anyone.
0: Rebel.
1: Graduated. That then thinking I had a law degree and I was like, actually <laughs> something to tell you.
0: <laughs> That's better than I, I didn't go. Yeah. That <laughs> That's is, better yeah. than some people. I had a friend who, um, he got kicked out in the first year and stayed at the city for three years without telling <laughs> his parents that he was kicked out and then told them when he was like, when's graduation? He was like, mom, I got something to tell you. I've been working in a toy shop in York for three years. Seriously. <laughs> was this really you? No, it was eight. <laughs> hey, Christ, I'm educated to the ninth. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, I just, um, and then my father was, why did you do an English degree? You can speak perfectly good English. Um, And just didn't know what I was going to do with it. And I knew that I wanted to do, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to write. That was my thing that I wanted to do. Um, And actually ended up working in PR. It was my first job out of university and I realized that the thing I like, liked doing most was writing the press releases. That wasn't that exciting. But I, you know, that was the part I liked. So then I decided to go back to education and do a postgrad in journalism. Uh, I did that. And then started working on magazines and worked in magazines for about 10 years. Um, and was happy, but there was something missing. I was something I just never felt that tired at night. I just you know there was an ache missing somewhere and I got a phone call from a friend of mine who was a stylist on a magazine and she said oh I've just seen an advert for a tv show Gordon Ramsay is looking for a new Fanny Craddock and I just <laughs> have this intuition that it's going to be you and weirdly she was quite psychic you know she's like crazy <laughs> yeah she and and I was like and she said, like, "You've just got to enter." And she kept badgering me and kept saying, "You've just got to enter." So she
0: tasted your food a lot, yeah,
1: because I was like the diet disaster working on a like fashion magazine, you know, coming in with all these like things that I'd made samosas and cupcakes and all sorts of you know nonsense. And actually, the thing that really bonded us as women, as well, on this magazine was food what did you have for you for your dinner last night or what are you having for lunch or that was a thing that connected I
0: bet you're the person who has while they're having the dinner is talking about the next meal yeah you know, exactly yeah. already <laughs> planning going, yeah oh, I can't wait for breakfast. yeah your, your exactly
1: and um and so she tasted my win she was just like I just know you're gonna win and uh, it was just like a pipe dream mm. like how how does a girl from journalism go on to a competition like that and, and win? I just didn't think it was possible. And so I entered and I got a call from the production company um, saying, oh, you, you've made it through to the last, final 50 fannies.
0: It's just so around around. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been Delia. Yeah,
1: Could I Could have know, been just be I the
0: think... next hob cook. It, 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 the fact that it's just like, be my fanny. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Difficult. And,
1: and you know, it was like crazy because like 9,000 women had entered this competition. And she's on the F word. Like, yeah.
0: F word was the biggest thing on telly, wasn't and it? And
1: like, you know, it had gone so over my head because actually I'd never watched it. I'd, I'd always, I worked on a fashion magazine where we're just out all the time, you know, parties and doing fashion shows. And, you know, I just never watched that show. And I, Friday night,
0: you're not watching telly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Of course, I knew who Gordon Ramsay was, but, you know, I didn't realize, I was very naive. I didn't realize how big the show was or how big, the, uh, big a deal was. I didn't know how many viewers this, this thing had.
3: Probably a good thing.
1: Yeah, I think it, was it really was a good thing because... Um, Less
0: pressure in your yeah, head.
1: So we got through, uh, there were like various rounds. And then finally, he picked three women to kind of cook off against each other. And when he called my name, I was just like, what? And actually, to be fair, one of the contestants was smashed. <laughs> so I was like, okay. She was trying to cook a whole chicken in 20 minutes and she was a chef. She's an actual chef. And I was like, okay. So I I cooked and I just cooked the kind of food I like to eat. And um Angela Hartnett and Mark Sargent were on the panel, judging panel and everything. And and i and i won and it was this this kind of crazy moment of being quite shocked but at the same time thinking do you know i've i've thought this so many times that this is what i want to do with my life i've i've loved this so much that it didn't come as an entire surprise to me that my life was unfolding like this and even then at that point okay i won and i thought okay this is great but i didn't know i could do anything with it and I still went back to my job, and I remember my editor. You know, I said, "Oh, you know that thingy? I took the day off for." Well, <laughs> I won the thingy, and and she was like, "Oh my god, we're going to lose you, aren't we?" And I, it's like, "Don't be ridiculous." What What do you mean? Of course not. And even at that point, I didn't realize how big this show was.
0: And so I think that's brilliant, though. I think it's so refreshing to see because most because the other people probably knew it was massive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they- I
1: just really, I was so naive about the whole thing. And then the day it aired, I started getting calls from both agents and newspapers. <laughs> it's quite weird. Um, and I just, you know, being a journalist, I was just very kind of no shit about everything. It's just mm-hmm. very kind of, you know, very real about everything. And then I went to see The Last Agent and I'd been writing a book Um, for myself, never in a million years, thinking I'd get it published. It was more an account of my recipes and, you know, my life that then, which was very much like London Girl About Town. And she said, oh, well, we've actually got a literary side. And I've got, there's a literary agent who you should meet. And I walked into this girl who was like... (laughs) Eating this huge lunch on her table and, and like, like voraciously eating this lunch while talking, ha- managing to have this conversation with me with her mouth full. I was so impressed by her because it, <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. And she looked at my manuscript and she sort of read it over like really analytically and just went, this is brilliant. I really like to work with you on this and I I want you to go off and finish it and I want to send it off um, to publishers. And I think it was, it worked because I think whenever you're writing something, this is the advice that, you you know, when people ask me, well, how do you write a cookbook and how do you, you have to do something that only you can be doing. And at that time, I was probably the only girl in London working on a fashion magazine who was interested in food, writing in that voice. And won and, the F word. And won the F word, exactly. <laughs> All those things. And, you know, it was written in a very genuine voice. And then like, you know, I signed with a, a publisher and I had six months to write it. So I thought, well, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it properly. And I, I left my job. And it was quite scary to, to do that, to take this kind of leap into the dark. And I wrote my cookbook and the cookbook did really well. And, you know, it won an award and and all of this. It was really good. But there was a year where I was just not doing very much. And it was scary. You know, I've always been in in a job, um, always earned a monthly salary. And then to go from that to this kind of...
3: You got time on your hands,
0: yeah.
1: Void of like not knowing when your next. Uh, I mean, it's you like
0: a, it's a creative, innit? It's that thing, isn't it? Just chasing. Oh, when's that? When's the next paycheck gonna come from there? Because yeah. I don't want to go. If you go back to your job, then it's kind of like, oh, i <clears throat> will put that on hold. You got to yeah. really commit to it, I guess.
1: And then, and then, you know, and then things change. And I, I got, um, I did a show for a two-part documentary for BBC Two, and shortly after that had wrapped up, I got a call from my agent saying, oh there's a show um, Channel 4 are doing, I don't think you're right for it, but they want to meet you. And I said, why don't you think I'm right for it? And she said, oh, I don't know. I don't think they're going to go for you because they, they. I think they're looking for someone who can really do some investigative journalism into food. And, you know, my book, Cooking Boots, had been this kind of very kind of glossy fashion meets food kind of girl about town. And I remember going to meet Channel 4 and they were talking about, you know, pig farming in Poland and all sorts of things, all sorts of scenarios that they wanted to make film on. And I looked at them and I said, um, they said to me, oh, I really like you. you're very warm. You're very, you know, you come across really well on, on camera. But, you know, they weren't sure about me. And um, there was somebody else in the pipeline. And I said, I said. Is the other person a man? <laughs> and uh, and they're like, out uh, it. I yeah. It. And I said, well, you can tell Channel Four from me that you won't get the emotional vulnerability of a woman crying in a pig farm in Poland from him.
0: He <laughs> 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 will. He will definitely won't.
1: And then, and I got to, got the job. Awesome.
0: You just stormed out after that. Did you you get to go to Poland? (laughs) No,
1: I didn't. After all that. But I did get to go to some really interesting places. And I remember them sort of even tricking me. This very funny production meeting where they were like, oh, we're going to go to um, Zimbabwe. And uh, we're going to look at tilapia fishing in Zimbabwe. And... um, what we're going to have to do is uh, we're going to have to put you in a cage and we're going to have to lower you into crocodile and shark-ridden water to look because we want these shots of the tilapia and everything from your perspective. And, you know, I can barely swim. <laughs> and so I, you're I, like, yeah. I was okay. like, yeah, absolutely, fine. And they were just laughing because they were just having me on. <laughs> I was terrible. Like, so yeah. <laughs> Plucky. Yeah, I'll do it. Of course.
0: I would not be doing that for, for Channel Four. No, <laughs> so so far you still haven't. We still haven't been in the kitchen. Like,
1: yeah, and then this is when it changes. So my co-host uh, for the show was Jay Rayner, and uh, what
0: was the show called?
1: It was called. Oh, it's a horrible title. I'm so embarrassed. It was called Food Colon. <laughs> what goes in your basket? And the, the colon was very important. <laughs> there was conversations <laughs> about that
3: colon, wasn't
1: there? <laughs> it? Was bacon, the colon. I mean, what, who thought of that title? Anyway? <laughs> Food, what goes in your basket? Exclamation cool. mark! Um, yeah, so Jay was uh, the co-host, and I go off and travel for a week and then I'd come back into this kitchen and I would cook and we'd have a live studio audience and I'd be cooking and we'd be talking about a cut of an animal or whatever it was that topic that week and Jay is like a mouth on legs <clears throat> and he just loves to eat and he really liked my food and he just like gobble it up like he really enthusiastically, right in, yeah you know I mean? and he said to me you know what um, why are you wasting your time? You're you've this is you've got something and you should um you should go and work in a kitchen. You should just go and learn the business of restaurants. And I don't think and he says it till today, he didn't think for a second I'd listen to him. Um and I did. And I just started going to kitchens and doing stages and peeling potatoes and crying a lot (laughs) i'm so tired There's such long hours Ah. and it really it really shocks your system you know the first time you do a double shift how exhausting and
0: i was talking about because i'm I'm a chef i have two two little pop-up like uh, residency things and i used to think a 12-hour shift was like crazy now it's literally normal i don't sat down and had something to eat yeah. Since 1995, do you know, what I mean? it's like <laughs> it feels like that. You, you just constantly do it, but it's it's a massive shock. It's a shock to the system when they give you the two-hour break in between. You know, when you do yeah. that, something like that, and you're like, we didn't even what have do do? That... what do I do?
1: My first job in a kitchen. I would travel, and I I lived on the borders of so, sort of Kent, Southeast London. Then I would travel to you know into Central London, and or actually it was Northwest London that journey took me an hour and a half, two hours sometimes. And I would leave the house at 5.30 in the morning to be there at 7.30 in the morning. And then I would work from 7.30 through to 4, 4.45, have maybe 45 minutes, half an hour, and then work again till 11, and do that. Proper and graft. it was really, really tough. And yeah, I learned a lot in that time. And then i got I got really lucky. I got a really lucky break, so uh the chef Anna Hansen was doing this pop up um at another restaurant, and she was doing it for two weeks or something and every Wednesday she let a guest chef come in and take over and she hadn't even tasted my food at, at that point, and she just had heard from somebody else, so she said, Why didn't you come and take over this one night and i I was like I've never cooked for a public like you know 90 people or whatever never done it never run a ticketed service you know I was very much doing prep in kitchens I hadn't even done a proper service and um and she just believed in me and she just can't she's so pragmatic and just so kind of calm And nothing is a problem, like nothing can go so horribly wrong. And she just let me loose in this kitchen and gave me that opportunity and that belief. And you know what? I really knocked it out of the park. It was incredible. I did a service of 95 and it was that buzz, that adrenaline.
2: It's addicted to that.
1: And I remember going home and I was buzzing. It was like being on drugs. I was buzzing to like 3.30 in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I was just so high (laughs) off that service and off the praise and off the love for the food. And I was like, this is it. And then luckily, so someone from Selfridges had been at that pop up. And they then came to me and said, Well, why don't you do something at Selfridges? And so I did this, this pop up again at Selfridges. And it Oh, it's incredible! What an opportunity for a complete novice, actually. And second shift. Second shift. shift.
0: I was taking myself just for a night. Um, and it was,
1: you know, it <laughs> was, See you was Buckingham Palace. On it before. was at Hicks, and um, and then he said, "Look, we'll do a tasting." Wow. And I completely uh, respect him for that because you know if he was going to give me that space, he needed to taste my food, and I remember working really hard doing like twenty dishes thinking that he's going to be like, oh, you know, yeah, those five or whatever. And he went, just do all of them. And I went, what? And he went, just do all of them. And then there was this gap because um, my father died in that time. It was very sad. He was very ill. Um, And so I had to postpone it. And Mark really, actually really touched me because when it came to me doing this thing. We finally got in touch again. He said, why don't you just do this this whole thing as a memorial to your father? We'll print his name on the menus. We'll put a picture of him up and you just do all his favorite dishes. That's
0: brilliant. Mm. And
1: it was just the most, I still get emotional thinking about it. It was the most incredible night. And there were people like Yotamotolenghi and Matthew Fort and all these people like just really saying, well done, like they're really enjoying the food. And then I just, I felt like afterwards, after that, my career just kind of opened up because I felt almost like I was on this conveyor belt that I maybe didn't even want to be on, but I couldn't get off. And one offer after the other offer to do these supper clubs and pop-ups just kept coming and coming. And, And, you know, I... I really do believe there was this, this, my father in that spirit, because he never got what I did. And then eventually, um, when I started cooking, it was, it was tangible to him. Cooking means you can open a business. Why don't you open a business? That immigrant work ethic, open a business, open a business, just open a restaurant. And he'd said it to me all along. And I had no business experience. I was bad at maths. You know i didn 't have that sense or sensibility to do anything like that, and I do really think that there was some sort of destiny and magic going on this spirit just pushing me on and and then finally and and you know i 'd had someone an investor approach me shortly after the Mark Hicks thing, and I just said there 's no way because i 've done two pop ups i 'm just not ready." And over four years, the same guy just kept coming back to me and saying, well, have you thought about it? Have you thought about it? And the conversation never really got anywhere. And actually, partly him as well, not responding and, and everything. But it was good because I'd had this time to really explore and birth the idea of Chaconia and what I wanted it wanted to do. And I remember being at this... Six week pop up that I was doing um, at South Place Hotel. And this critic who'd come to a few of my things had come to this as well. And she asked to speak to me at the end of the evening. I was really terrified. Um, and I went to her and she just said, Why are you being such a coward? And I said, what, what do you mean? And she said, Isn't it time you just got a space of your own, all this moving around that you're
0: doing?
1: <laughs> and, you know, that was it. The seed was planted pop-ups at that point.
0: Pop-ups, probably, pop-ups are probably harder to do than you think. Cause you've got, you've got to move everything. Yeah. You've got to do it for one day. And it's like, it's, it's, it's intense. I, I remember
1: it? being a completely knackered. I'd just done this event uh, in East London and um, I was on a tube home with all my stuff, like right. bags of stuff. And I was wearing this beautiful Mac, which I just bought. And um, I I kind of fell asleep. I was so tired. And then I woke up and thought, what the hell? And this entire bottle of olive oil that hadn't been oh, done up properly gutted. was all over my mat, completely ruined it.
3: And you're on the tube.
1: And I'm on the tube and I'm soaked with oil. It was disgusting. Anyway, um, and I just thought, yeah, this this makes sense. And and then I ran into this investor guy again. And I thought, here goes. He's just going to ask me. I'm going to send him an email and, um, you know, he's not, he's not going to respond again and I'm back to square one. And now I've really got this plan together. I've got a business plan together. And <clears throat> that day I had lunch with, um, with Jay Rayner actually. And I said, oh, I'm going to this party later and this investor's going to be there. And I bet you he's just going to do the same old schlep of like, oh yeah, send me an email and you know, it'll get nowhere. And he'll approach me as well. And so Jay said, well, you know, if he approaches, you just tell him you're no, no longer interested and he's missed the boat and you've moved on.
0: He knows what he's done, doing <laughs> Rainer, doesn't he? I want Rainer as a pal. I want to tech him about. Meet my mate Jay. He's all right. Yeah, Don't, He eats, but you know.
1: <laughs> and so, yeah, that was it. I just, I met this guy that evening and I said, Mam, yeah, missed the boat, no longer interested, played a bit hard to get. And the very next day, he sent me an email saying, "Can we meet?"
0: That's ballsy, though, isn't it? That's a ballsy move because I would, I can't do stuff like that. It always makes me go. But if they just go, I'm, knackered, I'm not good. That's the a track. That's what you've got to do. So now he's he's
3: invited you again. You turn that down as well. You're like, no <laughs> yeah. way. If
0: you can't get something, you want it more. Yeah.
1: Anyway, so eventually, I went and met with him, and 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 then I said, "Look, I've got this idea, and I I want to open in Marlborough, and and he had no experience of Marlborough, and just wasn't that interested in opening this area and I knew I wanted to open here and nowhere else and you know I went from this very humble well I you know I'm just a home cook and Mm -hmm. I just I just want a kitchen and a few chairs and tables but you know in Marylebone (laughs) (laughs) and uh, he was like okay so I remember being like this really dogged determined person and coming into Marylebone wearing an anorak and like with a notebook and a covered pen. Covered in oil. And, and yeah, covered in oil and looking through restaurant windows at like seven o'clock, seven thirty, eight eight o'clock and counting covers to footfall. prove to them footfall, to prove to them that there was footfall here and there was business to
0: be had. Who's like um, the restaurant man who did that program? And Russell I remember, Norman. Yeah, He did the advice and basically said, like, um, when I opened um, Pol Pot, I went to the street I wanted to open on for a month. Every day at this time, and then I'd come back the next time at another time, and I counted how many people would be walking. Yeah, like, like a bouncer. Yeah, the clicky pen. Yeah, I a didn't even have that.
1: But, but I, had you know my I mean? fingers and like, a pen.
0: Yeah, but <laughs> but that, that's that's the sort of thing you need to know because so many people really. That is the most obvious thing. How many people walk down that street and go into your restaurant? A lot of people just go, oh, that's a busy place. Let's go there. They don't think. They don't kind of get the details.
1: And, you know, we we, uh, wrote to people, like we wrote to restaurants that we thought maybe aren't that successful or closing and offered them money, (laughs) offered to meet them and, you know, wrote them letters. Oh, it's like awful because there just wasn't anything available in this area. And then this is boarded up. So... This used to be that left hand side there or right hand side for me now, uh, used to be uh, organic, and it was one single site and this where we 're sitting now used to be a nail bar and organic was like a I think it was a three year lease or something like that and then when it closed, uh, the estate took the site both sites back, um, knocked them all out, and um, developed flats above. Um and so like I said, it was completely boarded up and I'd walked past it and actually been some another restaurant had said, Oh, you know, there's this site available on Blanford Street. And so I went in to see the Portman Estate and I said, Look, you've just gotta give me that site They're <laughs> like who are you? Um Paul is pig farm. she absolutely smashed that, <laughs> that stuff. Yeah. And I just said, Look, I just you know And they were like, no, look, it's a year away from even being available. We're still developing it. And even then, we've got all these, you know, known business people interested in the site. And we intend to market it properly. And you can't just, you know, rock up here and demand to have this site. And I was like, okay, fine. And I remember when viewings were going on, they didn't even invite me to view it. I actually snuck in on someone else's viewing.
0: I love this. I'm taking you when I get my next flat. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely.
1: Uh, done. And, um, and so um, I just convinced them and I said, this isn't fair and you've got to let me pitch. And I've got this idea and I think it fits in with what your vision and your kind of the way they do Marylebone. So, yeah, so I, I, I said, you've got to let me pitch and um, walked in, and we'd prepared a really impressive pitch, actually, and I'd even cooked things, and like, you know, got the name, and I'd got, there's a picture on the wall, in fact, because this was just a white box, there was nothing here, the stairs were at the front, there was absolutely nothing here, no kitchen, no, nothing was set up, and um, I'd actually got an illustrator to do a vision of exactly how I wanted the site to look, and it was something about that, I think, showing them this idea. And when you look at that illustration, you'll see it's not actually that different to how wow. this place looks now. And um, <clears throat> it was that, that tangibility. And I just kept going on at them. And they asked me to pitch again. And, you know, I, I, it would be like gaps of two months. I just didn't hear from them.
0: So, so you you're 23rd of December, you get a call, you get it, like... All that work because most nowadays I think, all right, this area especially is really hard to get, but a lot of people just get get it and they move in, and then within a year they're out. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think because there's no preparation there, and there's no, de- it's like you chose where you wanted to be, you chose, yeah. the, you chose the site, <clears throat> you snuck in on other views. It, you know, determination, graft, yeah. and drive, it yeah. seems like that start, that's coming up quite a lot in everything you do.
1: Yeah, it. I think I've got that work ethic. It just It's yeah. always been there. And I think even in the past when I, I did pop-ups in supper clubs, you know, I wasn't the girl who handed over my recipes and got somebody else to knock them out. I did everything myself. When I did the Hicks things, I, I was there, you know, doing doubles three days prior to my pop-up and i remember doing something at cafe anglais with the wonderful roly lee and um my pop-up was on a tuesday and on the friday i turned up with all my stuff and roly being roly sort of really grumpy and very funny just went what the f are you doing here <laughs> and i was like i'm here to prep And he just, he just, and you know, I saw him recently, and he said, you're a graster. And it meant so much to me, because he saw that I I put in the work, it wasn't like, and I think in a way, it was also a very conscious effort. And I, I felt it was necessary, because I'd really had a lot of luck. You know, I came off a reality TV show, this amazing luck. And there's a, there's a saying, some people like their luck buttered. I'm not one of those people. When I have a little bit of luck, I will long it out. I will use that and I will work hard to get to the next thing.
0: But you can't hide, you know, reality TV and that, but you can't hide, But if your food wasn't good enough, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like every person yeah. you've mentioned, the Jays, um, Gordon Ramsay, people like that, Hicks, it, they, you always end it with, and they like my food. And yeah. that's what the most important thing is really, isn't it? It's just yeah. getting it to the right people.
1: Exactly. And so, yeah, I just, um, you know, grafted away. And then this, you know, project was really, I mean, something because we weren't, you know, millionaires with millionaire investors. This was a very <laughs> humble project, even though it was in Marylebone. We did it quite humbly and quite sort of entrepreneurially. And... um we, you know, sort of set out thinking about. Um, firstly, we weren't even allowed to tell anyone. So, for from December to May, I couldn't breathe a word to anyone. And it was really because I wanted to scream from the rooftops. But, you know, the kind of legals take such a long time. And there's so many uh, points where you think, oh my God, it's all going to fall apart again. And we're going to lose this site. And we just, you know, went on. And then finally we got inside and you know the design and everything and I sort of said you know I don't want to lie about my background I'm not a chef who went to culinary school and sweated over stove for 15 years to to get to where I am I've been really lucky and actually essentially I'm a home cook and I want that to be visible in this place. And this restaurant must be an extension of my home and my home kitchen. And that is what it is. And actually, on the best nights here, when service is beautiful and it can be so beautiful, it is like a big dinner party. You'll have this table talking to that table and that table talking to this table. It's so lovely. And... um And that's what I wanted to build. I wanted to build a community neighborhood restaurant. I didn't want it to be a gimmick. I didn't want anything gimmicky about it. I just wanted it to feel like it was part of the fabric of this community. And that whole idea of community service, we wanted to do good business. Good business is about whether you're being, you know, um, socially, economically aware, environmentally aware, giving something back to your community that's positive. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted a restaurant where people didn't just come once. They came again and again and again. And you got to know their names and their dogs' names and how they like their gin and tonic fix and where they like to sit and all their quirks. I wanted that. So much. You can That's, tell
0: this restaurant is like you. I've been speaking for an hour. Do you know yeah, what I mean? It yeah. kind of, it's you, basically, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: it is. It is It is me and it's us. Actually, I, I say it's us because it isn't just me anymore. This is the work of a team. You know, restaurants aren't solo journeys. You can't do this on your own. It's impossible. And everybody here from my kitchen porters to my general manager feeds into this.
0: So all these things you've done through, you know, from fashion, starting in there, then doing the TV stuff, then doing the writing, then do the pop-ups. Where are you, like, most happy at then?
1: Here, definitely here. You know, I think there are, two, there are two sides to me. So I'm on one side, I'm a writer, and I'm a writer by trade. That's what I do. And actually, I've just written another book, and I've just handed in that. Uh, that was the last year was really tough because before I used to whinge about being really busy and, you know, having loads of deadlines as a journalist and try doing that and writing a book, 65,000 words while running a restaurant It, was, it was something time. you said
3: before when you, when you were a journalist and you weren't tired on a night. Yeah. So well, that's definitely changed, right? Yeah.
1: That's it. Uh, I, yeah, I'm like, my head hits the pillow and I'm out. <laughs> you know, I just, it's that ache and... I I have to admit that the first you know I don't want to make it sound like I'm it's such a you know struggle because there 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 is a point where you start to see the light a bit and the very fact that I've been able to go away for two weeks is is that light you know.
3: So where where are the type of places that you go and eat either locally or just oh. throughout London. <clears throat>
1: Do you know I love a Corbyn and King <laughs> place. <laughs> I just uh especially for the hours that we work and generally in the evenings I'm here. I like to be here uh for services. And um so by the time you've packed up, there aren't many places open. But God the Walsley, yeah, the Walsley or the Delaware will always have you. And, you know, I've I've turned up at like midnight and they'll still let me in, still let me eat a, you know, schnitzel or whatever Um, and it's just really good food and impeccable service you know and that's what you go for again and again you can go to a restaurant with amazing food but hopeless service and you'll never return Um, and for me the hospitality side of restaurants is really important um and we try and do that here we try and instill that here
0: should we start wrapping up and do a little quick fire round yeah
1: we're going to do a quick
3: fire oh god how is how it sound, sounds but it's very easy it's not very quick at all it's quite quite <laughs> okay. long. um so we'll start with top three foods you can't live without
1: ingredients or food or dishes anything you want. you want um butter yeah that um lemon the zest of a lemon um I think it just adds something especially when you're using it on things like lamb you know something with a lot of fat and you use just the juice and then the zest as well it's like something else it's very uplifting um garlic I love garlic lots of it um and then what would I say um it's difficult. I love, um, I love curry leaves. Oh, the smell of curry leaves. You know, there's nothing like it. I can never use dried ones. You know, they have to be fresh. Um, and they just give this fragrance that nothing else in the world can. You just can't replace them with anything else. It's just it has to be a curry leaf.
0: You make me hungry. Now. I know. Um, <laughs> your favourite food, guilty pleasure? Crisps. <laughs> Simple. Simple. I'm
1: really so easy to please. I could eat crisps for lunch, dinner. What's your f- favourite crisp Then
0: come on, we got to have it.
1: Salt and vinegar Walkers. I don't like expensive crisps. I really like cheap crisps. Like I like. I don't like to work too hard with my mouth. <laughs> Those kettle chips you have to Crap, chew. Do you know what
0: really lot. nice to though About Walkers. Last time I, I got one last week. Right, meal deal in Morrison's. Opened it.
1: There's
0: three in mm. <coughs> no, there.
1: No, you've got to get a grab bag. You have
0: a bag. I could see that coming. Right? So no, I know Jordan's
3: a, a Chris fan. He told me the story yesterday. He was having a chicken sandwich in a packet of Wotsits, and then he knocked his chicken sandwich off the, the top of his car, car.
0: onto the floor. So all the content, I, so I caught it like that on my chest, <laughs> but all the, all the chicken went down me. <laughs> so I do just me, Alfie, in Morrison's cafe, yeah, in bread and what's it. That's oh, I, I was like A look, what's it
1: sandwich. What's mm. it
0: sandwich, basically, looking at the chicken underneath my cows, fuming. Then pigeons came at me like bloody <laughs> grenades. <laughs> anyway.
3: Right, biggest kitchen disaster.
1: Oh, God. Um, oh, yeah, there was one here. Um, I was going to say I haven't had any because everything you learn from, but there was a huge disaster. I had ordered, uh, goose legs. We were making, it was Christmas and I was making these like little goose, um, goose, pulled goose leg puffs, curried goose leg puffs, oh, like a nice. mm, really delicious, like a goose korma, but inside puff pastry, oh, really hopefully. delicious. Um, and of course, goose takes a long time to confit and cook. So I thought I'd cheat it in a pressure cooker. And I left the pressure cooker on and I thought I'd switch the heat off. And then I s- sniffed after a couple of hours and it was burning. And I was like, oh, no, it can't be. And it was all those beautiful goose legs burnt, like black, burnt, um, all Chad, goose legs
0: sounds good yeah. though as well. But they
1: were like irretrievable and then it's not a cheap ingredient it's either not. I was furious with myself <laughs> um,
0: if you had to have a meal every day first your life what would it be
1: oh god that's so unfair um what would I have Doll, I guess, life saving doll. I think that's what Mother Joffrey called it LSD, life saving dolls. <laughs> awesome. LSD, so, and, it's gotta go on the menu. And yeah. you know, yeah, there's just so many varieties of pulses and, and lentils, and there are so many different ways to cook them. Um, and I know so many, so I think I'd, I'd survive.
3: So, if you could cook your favorite meal for one person, who would it be?
1: um who would it be i would love to cook for my my grandfather or my father but sadly that's not possible but yeah i think they're the people i wish my father had lived to see this restaurant i think he would never have moved from there i would have had this man just sitting there literally uh, um drinking whiskey um but yeah i wish i i could cook for them
0: amazing thank you so much I've really enjoyed it it's It's been been an absolute
1: pleasure thank you so much
0: thank you
3: well I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did what a phenomenal person she is she's lovely
0: just a really really passionate and excitable and driven and like how much hard work it goes into starting something just starting your little restaurant you know and what she's done the amount of people she's met along the way as well Absolutely. Also as well, I'm gonna go home right now and I'm gonna get some lamb and I'm gonna zest that bugger with some lemon.
3: I wanna buy butter and put it in mash mate. So thanks very much for listening, listeners. Uh, you know what to do. Like, subscribe and we'll see you next time.
0: Bon out